Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, hey, it's the diseases and the heavens. Uh, because, Rob, you recently said, hey, would you be interested in doing an episode or two on the interactions between plague pandemics of the past and God and religious interpretations? And I was like, wow, yeah, that sounds really interesting. But Rob, I, I, I got to admit, this is one of those topics where something sounds really interesting, but then as soon as you start getting into it, you realize, oh no, it's one of those where the more I read, the less I know. <laughs> um, that is definitely the case with the historical scholarship on religious responses to, to the plague. This, it seems like this is a really complicated area of research. Yes, I'd say a complicated area of research and also a robust and thriving area of research. And I think that's something that I mean, it might surprise some listeners out there to know that like the Black Death and the study of the Black Death and our attempt to understand, uh, you know, things like mortality rates and how it spread and and then how people responded to it and its and its effects short term and long term. You might think that this is this is a matter of the history books. This is something that has been settled for decades, if not centuries, and there's perhaps very little, like just some fine-tuning of the research these days, but it's not the case. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes on uh, in this area uh, of study, and there's still exciting stuff coming out. I mean, you go back a couple decades, and it seems like a lot of what people were arguing about was whether or not plague was caused by plague. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember this. Uh, I don't think I ever wrote anything specifically for HowStuffWorks.com about the Black Death. Maybe I had to cover it like briefly in some sort of a, uh, you know, like a top 10 pandemics type of a, an article or something. Uh, mm -hmm. But I remember at the time this being the case where there were these different different theories about what it might have been. Was it perhaps this uh, particular ailment or disease? Was it this one? Or was it actually uh, what we think of as bubonic plague? Yeah, and so at least I think that question is mostly settled. We can give a fairly firm answer on that one today. But I, I was just surprised how much about uh, the plague pandemics is still up in the air or has been questioned or, or is still controversial uh, and, and how often uh, a fact you thought you knew about it might not actually be correct. Uh, but anyway, so I, I was also wondering, like, how did you get interested in this? What, what made you want to talk about the Black Death and, and uh, the powers of God? Oh, uh, well, I think part of it was I was I had picked up Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose again when I was reading through through that, and I was reminded about how uh, it's, it's mentioned that uh, uh, Brother William eventually dies in the plague or is lost in the plague, and like knowing that the plague is the thing that comes, the Black Death specifically, uh, is, is the thing that comes after the events of the novel. And, um, and so sometimes that, that, you know, makes me think about the, the world that is described in that book and, and how, how it's going to fare against a threat like this. Hmm. And then of course it goes without saying, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this, uh, researching this during, uh, an ongoing global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I think it's, it's something that has been on a lot of people's minds. A lot of people have turned their minds back to, uh, historical plagues. Um, now, of course, in fighting this pandemic, COVID-19, we, we have a number of tools not available to humanity during the late Middle Ages. Uh, we know what actually causes the illness we're, we're facing. Uh, we're able to figure out how it works, and we have both treatments and, most marvelous of all, vaccines that we can use. And speaking of vaccines, 
Go get vaccinated against COVID-19 if you have the ability to do so. And if you're not sure, talk to a medical doctor and find out what you need to know from them. So obviously there were no vaccines in the time of the uh, of the Black Death in the 14th century outbreak of uh, of the plague, but also there really weren't any treatments. I mean, if you get plague today, we know today that it is a bacterial infection, and if caught early, it can be treated pretty effectively with antibiotics. I mean, back at the time of the Black Death, there there, there really were not effective interventions at all. Yeah, it's it's really kind of staggering to to think about it. To to think about to, to imagine a a time right before the Black Death and just think about what a mismatch this was. Medieval societies versus a deadly contagious disease caused by uh, an invisible bacterium. The disease, on one hand, you might say, you know, understands its human adversaries to a certain extent, you know, uh, and not that it has a will or an intelligence, but it gets in there and it does its thing. The humans, on the other hand, well, I mean, they, they have the gift of reason, certainly. They have technology and society, but they lack a germ theory of disease. They don't really know how the enemy, uh, in this case, uh, the Black Death, uh, how it functions or even truly what it is. So they're blind in many ways. And on top of that, they have leaned into a supernatural understanding of the world. They believe in gods and saints and demons and miracles, and they trust in religious organizations and religious authorities, or in many cases, powers that are ordained by religious authorities. Another way of looking at at things in this scenario is that in some ways you have humanity stranded between two unseen worlds, the at least partially invisible world of disease and then the invisible world of of religion. Uh, So, you know, it's like this is the matchup. How will these religious organizations and authorities respond to the Black Death? What chance do they have? And so uh, in this episode and uh, whatever episode or episodes follow it, uh, I thought we might get into that a little bit and talk about how imperfect societies respond to what is in in many ways, uh, you know, a perfect pathogen uh, with a focus on on religion. But before we get into the religious stuff, we will have to talk about just like what was the Black Death uh, as far as we understand it. Okay, well, I guess we should start with that question. What do we think we know today about the, the nature of this disease? So, uh, first of all, let's just talk about, like, what do we mean when we mean the Black Death versus, like, other plagues, right? Uh, So, historians generally consider the Black Death to have lasted from around 1346 uh, uh, CE, uh, obviously, to 1353 throughout Afro-Eurasia, more or less on the heels of the Great Famine of 1315 through 1317, and this, this will become important in a bit. But now, one thing that's important to consider, and this is true of uh, of multiple cases of plague pandemic in the world that we'll talk about in just a second, the, the Black Death as a term is sometimes applied to this sort of initial outbreak that has been widely studied as having happened in, say, like uh, Europe and the Middle East around the Mediterranean beginning around 1346 or 47, and then continuing for some years after that. But each of these pandemics is not contained to just a few years. There are these recurrent waves. Yeah. So there will be an initial wave of infection and then it just and then it sort of goes away for a while within a certain region, but then there will be subsequent outbreaks throughout different regions over the following uh centuries, really, in the case of the the one that begins in the fourteenth century. And uh and uh, one of the papers I was looking at was was calling these recurrent waves. Yeah, yeah. So it's important to to realize that the Black Death 
of the 14th century. It's not thought to be the first great outbreak of, of plague in the old world. Uh, the plague of Justinian occurred between uh 541 and 549 CE, and it was also not the last pandemic of plague, as major outbreaks would occur throughout the 14th and 17th centuries, including the Great Plague of London in 1665 and 1666. But the 14th century outbreak is what is generally referred to when we talk about the Black Death, a pandemic that claimed the lives of between 75 and 200 million people and reshaped society for the survivors. I've seen drastically different estimates of what percentage of people within certain regions uh, the Black Death killed. So I think this is not a settled question. It's something mm-hmm. that has to be, you know, it's not like there were just like uh, there was a census of people and, and you can chart everyone who died. It has This is a number that has to be established through estimates. Right. Uh, but like and in one, some cases, you have good data to go on. You know, you yeah. can look at, de- uh, at essentially death rolls from certain certain regions and certain time periods. And then right. some work has done, been done in, a, in, uh, in examining uh, similar cemeteries and the like. Yeah, exactly. As a one figure I looked at for the Black Death said that the Black Death and its recurrent waves may have wiped out somewhere between one third to two thirds of the population of Europe. Any way you shake it, a lot of people died. Uh, I mean, it's a, 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 you know, any variance in the numbers doesn't really take away from just how how brutal this was. Now, one source I was looking at in all of this was the the Anthropology of Plague by Sharon N. DeWitt, published in Pandemic Disease in the Medieval World, and this was from 2014. One of the things that DeWitt uh, talks about uh, is the idea that, uh, again, this this particular outbreak of plague, the Black Death, is following a period of rapid population growth and plenty due to warm climates and advancements in agriculture. Uh, When the warm period ended, however, there were ripples throughout Europe. There was less food, uh, there was famine, there uh, there was an abundance of labor under a feudal system. So most people during this time experienced a decline in their standard of living. Uh, non-plague illness and malnutrition uh, was was running rampant. And so there's this this strong argument to be made that DeWitt writes about at length that this put made them even more susceptible to this new disease or this new outbreak of, of a disease that had previously ravaged uh, parts of the region. Yeah, and, and this has been another major trend in uh, writing over, say, the past hundred years about the uh, about the, the Black Death of the 14th century and its recurrent waves. What what how exactly does that get situated within the broader uh, social economic and cultural context of the time which it occurred what what led to it what exacerbated it and what changes did it bring about because it's widely believed i guess we're not going to get super deep into these uh, particular historical theories but there have been a lot of theories about what role the black death may have played in say revolutionizing the economic history of, of europe and uh, did it in some way trigger changes that might lead to things you associate with the late middle ages or the renaissance exactly yeah uh and and you know i I think it's it's also one of these things where you you look at some of the older scholarship or if you just look at sort of generalized um, you know summaries of the black death you know it's often pointed out well this affected everybody it didn't matter what level of society you were you were at and to to a a large extent that is true i mean people died at every every level of society and there's this kind of idea that yeah the 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 black death is it's it's you know you get into these religious ideas of the the judgment of humanity and it's seems like it's just everybody is is uh, is suffering equally but uh does that hold up if we start looking at different populations uh be it 
things like population density or dealing with, you know, uh, large portions of the population that are malnourished uh, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, here's here's a quote from DeWitt in that article I mentioned. Quote, the very high levels of black death mortality and the results from hazard analysis, which indicate that this mortality was selective and targeted frail people of all ages, means that the epidemic might have exerted a strong selective force on the northern population, removing the frailest, unhealthiest individuals on a very large scale. If the post-Black Death population included individuals who were exposed to and survived the Black Death, this episode of selection might, at least in part, explain the very rapid apparent changes in medieval plague epidemiology. These changes include the apparent decline in plague mortality as described in contemporaneous historical documents. Okay, so what's she getting at there? Um, so uh, she's getting into this, you know, the, this idea that, okay, so the, the plague hits, it, it wipes out a lot of people, a lot of people that at, at, at all levels of society and all ages that may have uh, been extra susceptible to the ravages of a disease. But then afterwards, you perhaps have, have a certain resistance in the survivors. But then she also points out that, on the other hand, patterns of human plague deaths might reflect the, the disease dynamics of nearby animal host populations, which mm. can influence exposure of humans to plague. Plague, and we'll get we'll get into more of like what that means later about about um, uh, about the d- disease dynamics and animal hosts. Uh, but it but, you know it, it it also might mean that survivors were in better shape to survive the plague and or had better uh, access to nutrition or standard of living in the years after the, the, the Black Death had had really ravaged the population. Mm-hmm. Because after the Black Death, there's this idea that you ultimately end up with a potentially more sustainable population, potentially an improved gene pool with possible resistance to the plague. Uh, the feudal system was was weakened by all of this, potentially paving the way for further changes. Um, this is a direction a lot of the scholarship goes in. Yeah, what, what does it do to the world uh, that allows a certain amount of... Um, of, of rapid change to take place um, or, or introduces new changes that could occur at the, you know, the socioeconomic uh, level, et cetera. Um, of course, on the other hand, I think we have to be careful about getting into that air, you know, that sort of uh, what doesn't kill you makes you, sh- you stronger idea that like, you know, <laughs> oh, the plague was good. It just, it strengthened everybody up and made a better world because uh, in, in the words of Conan O'Brien, uh, what doesn't kill you almost kills you. Uh, so it was still a period of great suffering and death. I mean, to, to, to an extent that it's 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 difficult to imagine. And of course, that is going to have um, have an effect on the survivors that goes beyond just you know any kind of like fitness that results, uh, any kind of uh, resistance to, to illness or an improvement in your access to um, you know to to a higher standard of living. Right. So you shouldn't be lured into thinking like, oh, well, if after the plague, uh, the people who were left tended to have a higher d- resistance to disease and may have, there may have been some economic benefits for them. That, that doesn't mean like the plague was a good thing. Right. Right. And the, I mean, plus, there's a lot of uh, a lot of great data on just how events of this nature. I mean, there is a lasting effect of, say, malnutrition on mm-hmm. uh, on one's um, descendants, that sort of thing. So to be clear, plague bad, plague, plague, very bad. I think I think that is one of the firm facts we can we could say consensus on that.
Now, what was the plague? Well, uh, as we mentioned earlier, there were uh, various alternative theories and hypotheses. I mean, I guess there still technically are uh, alternative theories and hypotheses, uh, but none of them have enough support to rival the now commonly agreed upon understanding that the plague in question was bubonic plague caused by the plague bacterium Yersinia pestis. Yeah. uh, So it seems like in the late 20th and early 21st century, there was some of this academic uh, debate about the infectious agent driving the Black Death. But yeah, I agree. It does seem like it is a pretty firm matter of consensus now that that uh, the Black Death beginning in the 14th century was caused by Yersinia pestis. And uh, that bacterium, that that bacillus, was uh, is something that we've known about since the year 1894, when it was uh, discovered, I think, by two different researchers pretty much simultaneously. One was Kitasato Shibasaburo of Japan, and the other was Alexander Yersin of France. So I think from his name, Yersin, you get Yersinia, the genus name of the, the bacterium that causes the plague. Uh, and so this was around the year 1894, which was also the time of the 1894 Hong Kong outbreak of plague, which was a major part of the third plague pandemic. You mentioned that there, were, there have been three major plague pandemics in history that we know about, the, the plague of Justinian. Uh, beginning in the the 6th century, then the Black Death beginning in the 14th century, and then this more recent one from the uh, from the 19th and 20th century. Right. And there've been there's been, been some other stuff sprinkled around in there as well. Uh, but those are the big ones. Now, uh, Yersinia pestis, as the CDC points out, um, it has a place in nature. Uh, Even in the modern world, even in North America, uh, Yersinia pestis is transmitted by fleas to a variety of rodents. Uh, And these rodents certainly include the rat, but they also include squirrels, chipmunks, voles, and rabbits. This situation is is relatively stable, it's thought, with the bacteria circulating at low rates and without excessive uh, mortality, again, in these rodent populations. Populations. Yeah, so as with a number of zoonotic diseases, h- humans are not, not the natural host of this bacterium, Yersinia pestis. Uh, Yersinia pestis lives in this natural cycle. I think it's sometimes called the sylvan cycle, uh, traveling between the bodies of fleas and small mammals, generally rodents like rats, like you say, and then the bacteria multiply within the gut of the flea. And then when the flea bites a rat host to suck its blood, it sort of spits up some of the infectious bacteria in its gut into the rat and can infect a new rat host. But of course, sometimes infectious microbes can jump from their natural host species to another, like humans, and and this is where you get zoonotic diseases like plague. I was actually reading an article in Scientific American, or I think it wasn't originally in Siam, it was a reprint from Quanta, but it was by an author named Kerry Arnold from 2015 that was covering a study published in Nature Communications in 2015 about the evolution of this bacterium, of Yersinia pestis, which causes the plague. Uh, and the, the paper was by Zimbler et al. called Early Emergence of Yersinia pestis as a Severe Respiratory Pathogen. And uh, so the authors were looking into the question of where did Yersinia pestis come from and how did it become so virulent? Uh, And so they write in their abstract as follows. We showed that the acquisition of a single gene encoding the protease PLA, I think, uh, I'm not sure if that's pronounced play or pla, but it's PLA. Uh, PLA was sufficient for the most ancestral, deeply rooted strains of Y. pestis to cause pneumonic plague. And we'll get more into the, the different varieties in a moment. 
indicating that Y. pestis was primed to infect the lungs at a very early stage in its evolution. As Y. pestis further evolved, modern strains acquired a single amino acid modification within PLA that optimizes protease activity. While this modification is unnecessary to cause pneumonic plague, the substitution is instead needed to efficiently induce the invasive infection associated with the bubonic plague. These findings indicate that Y. pestis was capable of causing pneumonic plague before it evolved to optimally cause invasive infections in mammals. So uh, pneumonic plague, the version in the lungs, is, uh, is, as we'll explain in a bit, the most deadly form of Yersinia pestis infection. But, uh, but it has probably existed longer than the bubonic form of infection. But once the bacterium evolved the ability to cause the bubonic plague, the main version of the disease associated with the Black Death, the disease function of this bacterium was, in a sense, probably optimized for maximum infectious potential. And uh, then this, this article by Kerry Arnold quotes a microbiologist from Northern Arizona University at Flagstaff named Paul Keim, who mentions that uh, with uh, Yersinia pestis, quote, a single bacterium can cause disease in mice. It's hard to get much more virulent than that. Uh, and so that, that's an incredibly infectious agent. That's, if you're trying to set up like a thunderdome of bacteria, it seems like Yersinia pestis could be a sort of infecting champion if a single bacterium can, can cause this disease. Wow, yeah. So, uh, so like we said, the, the idea is in, in, in the natural model, it's just um, uh, Yersinia pestis and these rodents. But then these complications occur. So for starters, sometimes for different reasons, the death rate in the desired rodent um, host population goes up and the fleas have to go somewhere else. Um, and other times you have you know people coming into close contact with these animals with these fleas, and we see uh, these uh, these uh, these spreading events occur, and the flea still has to feed, so it might move on to other animals, including domestic animals and ultimately human beings as well. Now humans can acquire it from handling handling the bodies and pelts of infected animals. Um, dogs are apparently less likely to become ill, but can still bring the fleas uh, into close proximity with human beings. Interestingly enough, cats typically become very ill with it, and they can also directly infect humans through their cough if they, uh, if they have uh, the plague. Did you see anything? I feel like I saw a headline somewhere recently about, uh, about an outbreak of plague among mountain lions in North America. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? I did not see that article, but ba- I mean, based on this information about cats, it sounds like it could be very destructive. Okay, yeah, I just checked. I the, I was remembering this right. This uh, was from a couple of articles from April of last year in 2020 uh, that mm. found that in Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park in the United States, uh, there has been an outbreak of plague that has been uh, killing cougars in the park. Oh, wow. Strangely, this does kind of connect to uh, some stuff I've read about. So it's pretty rare for people to get uh, to get plague in the United States today, but it does happen. And sometimes mm-hmm. some of the cases I've read about it happening were from contact people had with animals in in parks in like wildlife refuges. Yeah, yeah, close proximity uh, to these animals uh, definitely is uh, is one of the driving driving forces in those uh, those spreads. Now we should we should stress that. With these these modern outbreaks, generally they don't do not spread as fast 
uh, and then ultimately we're better able to, to treat uh, these infections today. Uh, but yes, to be clear, the way plague tends to spread to human beings it includes flea bites, contact with contaminated fluids and tissues, and infectious droplets. And this sort of goes along with that there are three main different versions of the disease. So they're all caused by the same bacterium. They're all Yersinia mm-hmm. pestis. But depending on how you get infected, you can have different manifestations of disease within your body. And the most common version is the one you probably read about in school. It's the bubonic plague, the one that begins with uh, probably some kind of bite from from a parasite like a flea in the skin and then can eventually infect the, the lymph nodes. It causes swelling of the lymph nodes. You get these these bulbs uh, known as buboes, and this also comes with like very severe flu-like symptoms. But then there are these other less common versions of the plague disease that have their own characteristics, such as septicemic plague, which uh, – which comes from an infection of the blood and pneumonic plague, which is an infection of the lungs. And that one is, uh, from, from everything I read, pneumonic plague is the worst one of all. Yeah, I mean, there are varying... Um infection stats I was looking at on the three. And, uh, you know, it kind of depends, I think, on, on who you're looking at. Uh, but, uh, but certainly, uh, yes, yeah, so certainly the, uh, the pneumonic plague is, is pretty bad. Uh, but I guess one question this gets us to is uh, the question of what are the mechanisms of transmission? How was the plague actually spread, in, especially in these giant outbreaks and pandemics uh, from long ago? Yeah. Uh, so the, the way it's spreading, you're going to have different speeds involved, right? So um, the speed at which it tends to spread when it's based on flea transference is going to be different than the way it seems to spread if it's based on droplets in the air, people coughing in close proximity to one another. So you read you read some of these uh, these various ideas about what was happening with the, with the Black Death. How was plague spreading? And one idea that you uh, you you see is that well, perhaps it was spreading rapidly because it was primarily due to uh, these droplets and it was a largely pneumatic plague that was really wiping people out. Um, and if, if that were true, it would, it would kind of be ironic, I guess, because what do we think of when we think of plague? Uh, we often think of plague doctors, right? We think of those, uh, mm-hmm. those outfits with the, 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 you know, the, the, the big robe and the, the long uh, bird-like beak and the big hat and the, the staff, um, uh, and then when the staff, the idea being that it's, you know, to, to lift garments, but also perhaps to distance yourself from someone else. Uh, hmm. However, always worth remembering that the plague doctor outfits and masks, uh, I do not believe were introduced until later in the 17th century. Yeah. And wouldn't it, so even if this was a design that was out there, uh, you know, this, the, and, and there's some disagreements on how much it was actually used, uh, but it certainly would not have been used during the Black Death itself. It would have been subsequent plagues. Well, yeah, it would be some of the the recurrent waves from that ongoing pandemic that began in the 14th century. Right. And and then, of course, the other question would be, well, would it have worked, you know? Um, Well, ultimately, the design of those later plague doctor masks, it was more about purifying bad air and keeping bad air from touching your skin. So, uh, you know, you could make a case for it might have helped in some ways, but Mm -hmm. not for the reasons uh, present in the design, you know? Yeah, one thing that's kind of difficult to understand, uh, I've been reading about this, for example, in one paper looking at um, recent scholarship comparing 
the responses of religious communities of uh, Christians, Muslims, and Jews around the Mediterranean at the time, uh, and what what for example the question of like what they thought about the idea of contagion. You know, was was contagion within the epidemiological vocabulary uh, of people at the time? And it seems like to even though they didn't have a germ theory of disease, like we, they didn't understand fully that diseases were being caused by uh, tiny, you know, life forms that were replicating within their bodies. There were some people who had some form of an idea of contagion, uh, though the though the transmission mechanism itself might have been obscure to them. There were people who thought like, well, you can observe that plague tends to proliferate within a building. So uh, people within a house, then everybody else in the house starts to get plague. And then if you go to a place where there's a lot of plague, you're more likely to get plague. And so that might have been explained in terms of something like miasma theory, where you might think, well, there are just bad vapors around there. And if they get into you, maybe if you breathe them or they get on your skin, those will harm you. But I think there was also an idea that maybe sometimes sick people have some kind of particles coming off of them, and you want to prevent those particles from touching you. And so this might have inspired some of these full body coverings you see with the plague doctor outfits that, uh, you know, you would have big coverings that might have been uh, covered in some kind of waxy substance or something to try to really keep stuff out. And then you tuck it all in, like you tuck your shirt in and you tuck your gloves in and everything to kind of just prevent stuff from getting on you. And even if they didn't have a germ theory of disease, that in itself might've been quite useful in, um, in keeping out, uh, various, uh, vectors of infection that, that we can talk about in a second. Yeah. But then again, it, it can, you can also use the, some of the same logic to then uh, to make uh, judgments like, well, plague is here. I don't want plague. We should all go over here. And then we'll yeah. be safe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, so ultimately, w- without really knowing your enemy in this case, really knowing what it is you're up against and sort of the the rules that it, it adheres to, you know, th- there's also, there's still a lot of guesswork involved. And sometimes you you're kind of accidentally, or maybe not quite accidentally. I mean, making leaps based on logic, getting to some level of understanding about what you're dealing with and how disease works, but in other cases, missing it. Yeah, that's right. And it's still like it still seems like there is actually still a good bit of scientific controversy over what are the primary routes of transmission for plague at various times and places. Um the sources I've been looking at so it seems like the more classical understanding was that uh people were mostly infected with plague by proximity to what are called commensal rodents. Uh commensal comes from I think the term for uh, term for sharing a table together, sharing meals together, that uh, commensal rodents would be like rats living in or near your house and that those rats would get uh, inf- plague infected fleas on them. And then from the rats, the fleas would jump to humans and bite them. And those bites would develop into bubonic plague. And then, of course, sometimes bubonic plague can turn into pneumonic plague so you can have so this is a little confusing but you can have primary pneumonic plague where the infection route is inhaled droplets that infect the lungs so if somebody like coughs pneumonic plague and then you inhale it you can get primary pneumonic plague or you can have secondary pneumonic plague where you're first infected with the common form of the disease the bubonic plague And then that progresses in the body and develops into the lung infection, into pneumonic plague, and then you can spread it to others through droplets, through coughing or whatever. 
And of course, the people who got it that way would have primary pneumonic plague. And again, pneumonic plague is uh, extremely deadly. And in fact, to to introduce a study I I was going to mention next. uh, So there was a study published in PNAS in 2018 by Catherine R. Dean et al. uh, called Human Ectoparasites and the Spread of Plague in Europe During the Second Pandemic. And the authors there writing about the different forms of plague, they write that, uh, quote, secondary pneumonic plague develops in an estimated 20% of bubonic cases. uh, And this creates potential for primary pneumonic spread, even if it is not the dominant transmission route. Uh, So they're not saying that the the plague was primarily spread via droplets coughed by people who had pneumonic plague, but that can be one way that the plague spreads. Uh, So maybe like 20% of the people who get bubonic plague eventually end up with pneumonic plague, and then when they're coughing, it's going all over the place. But anyway, I I wanted to talk about this study itself by, by Dean et al. from 2018. Uh, because this uh, offered some evidence, some evidence based on uh, epidemiological modeling to try to solve the question of what was the primary route of transmission for plague in various places and times. So there's this consensus that, yes, the, the Black Death was caused by Yersinia pestis, primarily manifesting in the bubonic plague form. And this is backed up by multiple lines of evidence, including DNA analysis of uh, remains from places like plague cemeteries. But there are still these remaining questions about which route of transmission was the most responsible for the horrible outbreaks we see chronicled in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Now, just once again, some of the previously known major ways that a person could become infected with with plague would be, first of all, being bitten directly by a flea from a disease-carrying rat. And then the second would be inhaling droplets from a person infected with the pneumonic version of the disease. But there are some reasons for doubting either of these methods was the primary route of transmission for most plague infection in the second pandemic. And I think some of these doubts come in the form of uh, a lack of direct evidence. For example, uh, the authors here say that, you know, if you were to have a lot of plague coming directly from rats to humans, you would probably expect to see physical remains indicating huge rat die offs, uh, what they called rat falls. And they say that we don't actually have that. And then the other thing is circumstantial analysis. Like the spread of plague was often very rapid in a way that the authors argue can be difficult to explain given given either one of the preceding vectors. Uh, So say from directly from rats to humans or droplets from the pneumonic plague. And one problem with uh, spread via the pneumonic plague is actually that people with pneumonic plague tend to get very sick and die extremely fast, and this actually limits its transmission. Uh, a disease uh, a disease that kills its host very, very quickly can actually be less likely to spread because it's so deadly. Right, and this is something that's been driven home about, uh, the, about the current pandemic with, with COVID-19, is that it, it's... It, it doesn't kill people off immediately. It allows for this kind of spread, and, can, and, and that's one of the reasons we're in the, the place we are now. But in this paper, the authors here explore a third alternative, which they didn't uh, invent. This is something that has been uh, hypothesized and debated in, in previous research. But they're exploring and trying to model this third alternative, which is 
human-to-human transmission through the uh, intercession of human ectoparasites. These would be things like fleas and lice, but not jumping off of an infected rat and biting a human and then infecting them. Instead, specific human ectoparasites like human fleas or pulex irritans or human body lice uh, or Mm. uh, known as pediculus humanus humanus. And so the idea here would be that there might be some initial infection case that would come from a wild animal reservoir, but then once it is in humans, human ectoparasites like the fleas and lice living on human bodies would bite the infected human and then carry the infection and then go bite another human and infect them. So the primary responsibility would would look more like a human-to-human direct spread versus something that is uh, that is mediated by by a rat reservoir. So we're basically talking about an all new loop that develops, like not uh, not the the rat and rat parasite loop, but a human and human parasite loop. Right. And I want to be very clear that this this one study here does not mean like the question is settled and it was definitely the human ectoparasites. I think there's still a lot of open questions and plenty of room for debate about what were the main transmission vectors uh, in these different places and times during the second plague pandemic. But uh, the authors here at least found is one line of evidence in favor of the human ectoparasites hypothesis. Uh, This evidence was they ran simulations of epidemics based on the three different transmission vectors and what could be known about them, about like how fast you would expect them to spread and what the mortality would be and all that. So they created these mathematical models for uh, spread by primarily pneumonic droplets, people getting pneumonic plague and then coughing and infecting other people, and then flea bites directly from rats, and then spread via human ectoparasites. And they compared these models together um, based on existing data about mortality rates from nine known locations of plague outbreak in Europe during the second pandemic. And according to their model, the human ectoparasite spread fit the data better than the other methods of spread did. So they think this is one good line of evidence that the primary way plague was spread at this time was via these human ectoparasites. It was human to human, uh, but primarily from little things getting on you that bite you and then jump to another person and, and bite them. And even if you people, so again, we, we don't know that this is correct, but it's an interesting idea. And it makes me think about how, even though few, if any people would have understood the vectors of the disease in this way at the time, uh, it does make me think about how if you read plague treatises and people writing about the plague at the time, I recall a lot of things mentioning clothes, mm. uh, like infected clothes and bedclothes of the deceased and, and the idea of, you know, touching the things they wore and all that being being dangerous. And that, that makes me wonder if I'm remembering that right. I mean, that does make me wonder if there is, a, in a way, something people are picking up about places where you might expect to find the ectoparasites of infected people. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, on the other hand, if these were people suffering from extreme flu-like symptoms, uh, it also may, may, might make sense to steer clear of their their uh, their garments and their their sheets and so forth right. uh, for other reasons because of uh, potential uh, fluids and whatnot. Now, I saw some some coverage of this particular study. I think one of them had a headline that was essentially something like, rats are off the hook <laughs> for the Black Death. Uh, oh, come on. Do you, think, do you think that's fair? 
I, I mean, I guess I get halfway fair if you're trying to be cute. I mean, of course, given the understanding that it's not just like one study and then you're done with the subject, like, you know, you, you're, you're building a base of knowledge and you'd see how this would compare to other lines of evidence for and against the idea. But even then, I think it wouldn't be fully rats are off the hook because I, I if I'm understanding this idea correctly, I think it would still be the idea that there is, of course, a natural rodent reservoir and this is where Yersinia pestis lives in its standard cycle, its cycle in the wild. And so at some point, the jump would have had to happen. You would just say that rats are not primarily the thing carrying it to each person who gets infected. Right. So it seems like uh, we know second plague pandemic almost definitely was Yersinia pestis, uh, you know, hitting people primarily in the bubonic disease form uh, but uh, there are a lot of uh, interesting, still as yet unsettled questions out there about it, uh, how exactly it worked and, and research goes on. Yeah. And, there, you know, there's so many different factors when you start looking at, you know, what causes uh, uh, plague uh, episodics and, and outbreaks. Uh, you know, you have so many different factors to take into account, like like higher high rates of death among reservoir rodent species, uh, climate related factors, you know, cooler summers following wet winters. That seems to be a, a factor as well that I've seen highlighted. Um, and then you can also throw in things like high density human populations, uh, uh, you know, multiple rodent types living with Within that population and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the big questions that often comes up is, okay, well, where did it actually come from? Which, you know, in some, uh, I mean, in some ways that's a loaded question because like I say, you can, you can, in North America, you can essentially like wander out into the wilderness and there will be plagues somewhere out there. There are rodent reservoirs, uh, you know, all over the place for it. Uh, but in terms of like this particular outbreak, of the, you know, the Black Death, uh, there's been a lot written on it. I was reading, was the Black Death in India and China by George D. Sussman. Uh, and this was published in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine in 2011. And in it, the, the author first explores some of the early understandings about the geographic origins of the affliction and then moves on into other areas. So mm -hmm. there was apparently an understanding in the 14th century evident in the writings of 14th uh, century Italian lawyer Gabriel uh, de Musis that the Black Death had struck throughout the known world, that it was an international crisis, perhaps of biblical proportions, as play and, and it was hitting places so far away that they were almost mythical, that even those places were struggling with plague. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to mention, so a lot of the scholarship that we have comes from the Christian and the Islamic worlds. Uh, mm -hmm. He goes on to mention 14th century uh, poet uh, Ibn al-Wardi, uh, who uh, uh, was situated, I believe, in Aleppo, which is in modern-day Syria. Mm -hmm. And he spoke with merchants who had traveled and observed the plague elsewhere, and he himself would die of the plague in 1349. Uh, but he wrote that the pandemic had begun in northern Asia in what he called the land of darkness. Quote, China was not preserved from it, nor could the strongest fortress hinder it. The plague afflicted the Indians in India. It weighed upon the Sind. It seized with its hand and ensnarled even the land of the Uzbeks. How many backs did it break in what is Transoxiana? Uh, that, by the way, is a, an ancient name for lower Central Asia. Uh, and then he continues, the plague increased and spread further. 
But of course, as we'll discuss here, you know, this was a time during which there was no germ theory of disease. This bit from Alwardi uh, comes close to capturing the feel of an, of an actual pandemic, but there's obviously something lacking here, and it would be lacking for some time in human attempts to understand the Black Death's origins. Now, Sussman points to German medical historian J.F.C. Hecker, and he writes in 1832 of it extending out of China. Uh, but he, he links this to a, a number of alleged events in this part of the world around 1333, things like earthquakes and locusts, um, a falling meteor. And he then goes on to discuss it in very much the sort of context of miasma theory. Uh, mm-hmm. He describes it as a, a, quote, a progressive infection of zones, both above and below the Earth's surface that sweeps east to west. So again, not an understanding of something that will travel from person to person or via rodents or any, any uh, you know, uh, anything like we know now, but rather a kind of bad air fallout sweeping across Eurasia. And in the absence of other types of explanations, you could see how that would make a lot of sense. I mean, it could pretty neatly match the observed history of the progression of, of the disease. Yeah. Now, Sussman eventually concludes that the Black Death might not have visited China or India during the 14th century. And and again, I mean, we can't say with 100% degree of certainty. He just says that it seems like this might have been not been the case, though it would uh, hit China and India in later centuries. Uh, there's a great deal of European-focused material on plague, as well as a tradition of saying that it emerged in China. And it seems like the third plague pandemic of the 1800s may have began there, but it's it's hard to trace the second plague pandemic, the Black Death, with 100% accuracy. Uh, European and Middle Eastern uh, uh, ep- uh, epidemics can be traced to Crimea in 1346, but before that, uh, it's, it's hard to say. Accounts vary from in or near China to the Mongolian steppe to Central Asia. I've seen uh, Kurdistan and Iraq brought in, uh, brought up in an older paper, I think from 1977 by Norris. Um, so at any rate, it remains disputed, though you, you'll find science headlines, especially from around 2010, that say things like the origins of the Black Death traced back to China, gene sequencing has revealed. But in this, they're tracing it back 2,000 years to the region, which, if accurate, would position it as the cause of the Justinian plague more specifically. And when they, and what they ultimately say in that study is in or near China, which mm. covers a wide area of Asia. But again, you'll often find write-ups of plague where they'll say, oh, it originated in China, or it originated in Mongolia, or it originated in Central Asia. Um, and like we said, that's one of the things about diving into into research of the Black Death is you go into it thinking that there are certain like like really just 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 hardcore knowns. There's some solid pillars in this house of research, and and it's, uh, some are, uh, but some are not nearly as solid as you think. You know, Rob, the whole reason you brought this up was so we could talk about religious responses to the second plague pandemic. We haven't even gotten there yet. And I think we might have to call episode one right here and come back and dive into those religious responses in the next episode. I believe so. But we're, we're off to a good start. I think we've, 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 we've highlighted what the adversary is. And, and the next we'll see what uh, the religious authorities did and tried to do to deal with it or, or allowed or permitted, uh, et cetera. Um, so it should be it should be a fun discussion. All right. In the meantime, if you would like to write in about this episode or any other episode, uh, do so. 
get in touch with us. Yeah, yeah. Are you a microbiologist who uh, works with Yersinia pestis? Do you, do you want to tell us all about it? Right on in. Yeah, we would we would be delighted to hear from you. Uh, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find it, them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, listener mail on Monday, an artifact on Wednesday, and on Fridays we do a little Weird House Cinema. That's our time just to talk about a particular weird movie, and then we run a rerun over the weekend. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.